Un. I think we could have left out the salary information. Um, so uh, just save your emails. I already know they're coming. $100 a year. I saw it too. So I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy in chapter 4. 2 Th- Timothy chapter 4. As we now come to hear from our God, he might speak to us and change it. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Father in heaven, we come now to hear from your word, and we ask you in your kindness to your people who have been bought by the blood of Christ, that you would come and speak to us now, that your spirit who resides within our hearts would take your word and apply it deeply into our lives, that you would give us eyes to see our God and a heart to rejoice in him and his will for us. Please help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in the early 1990s that I attended as an undergraduate Humboldt State University. It was in Northern California, and I attended Humboldt largely uh, from a verse that impacted my life in 1 Peter chapter 2, when it says, Go and live among pagans, and although they will accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and worship the Lord on the day of visitation. And so taking that passage very literally, I, I tried to find the most pagan university I could. <laughs> Humboldt State um, is an interesting place. It, at least when I was there, had the highest homosexual uh, population per capita of any school in the country. The three largest marijuana busts have all taken place in Humboldt County. It was the Arcata, the city in which Humboldt State resided, was the first city council in America to elect a Green Party to the majority of the city council in which one of their first acts was to legalize nudity within the city limits. I studied political science there in which every one of my professors was an avowed communist. It's one of the reasons why the locals called HSU Little Moscow. Well, as an 18-year-old fresh into college, I was appointed to the Academic Senate. And there, the Academic Senate, which comprised of 42 professors and three students, sat around a very large table. It was my second meeting when a proposal was offered to amend the school policy to begin to recognize homosexual unions within the school. Now, you'll have to know that may not sound very startling to you this day, but this is 1993. This is before email. This is is a very kind of provocative move. And I remember as this 18-year-old kid sitting at this table listening to faculty after faculty member praise 
this move forward. And isn't this a wonderful time for our university? And here I was, 18 years old, having been introduced to Jesus about a year earlier, having an internal conflict, a, a conversation with the Lord. And I almost, it was almost as if he spoke to me at that time and said, are you going to follow me? And I remember praying to the Lord silently as this conversation was taking place. I'm afraid of them. And it's almost as if he spoke right back to my heart almost immediately. Are you not afraid of me? Do you not love me? Have you ever felt outside the group? Have you ever felt like an outsider, like you're not included, uncomfortable? Maybe it was for you in college like it was for me. Maybe it was the middle school, maybe those awkward years which many struggle with. Maybe it's right now, I don't know. Maybe you're looking around thinking, these people are weird. Right? <laughs> and you, you right now feel like an outsider. We, we, lock, we long to fit in, I think. We, 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 it's hard being on the outside when everyone's on the inside. And it's a powerful force in our life. Whether you call it peer pressure or herd mentality or fear of man, we are willing to change ourselves in order to fit in what we look like and what we like and even what we believe. We all have experienced that pressure. And not only us individually, but I think us corporately as a church experience that pressure even today. I don't know if it's obvious to you, but we no longer fit in. Right? I mean, you turn on the television and if chances are you're not going to watch a show and think, wow, they all really love Jesus. That day is long gone. We are now on the outside. In fact, I, I think the church has, in some sense has always been on the outside. In fact, look in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy in which Paul warns this young preacher at Ephesus. Saying, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, un unpleasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And he begins to describe what society is going to be like. And he describes all these sins in which people are giving them, themselves to. And then the surprise comes in verse 5 that these aren't pagans, but these is the description of the Christians. As you see, he says, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. These are the ones who claim to follow Christ. He says, this is, this is what you're going to encounter. In fact, he even tells us things are going to get worse. For you look in chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, a time is coming, right? And so there's something coming down the pipe, Timothy. And then he tells us what it is. A time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This time is coming when they don't want truth. A time is coming when they'll reject sound teaching. They don't want it. They'd rather have something else, Paul warns. And sadly, by the way, these people, they don't close the church building doors and sleep in on Sunday. They don't take up Sunday morning golf. You see that rather they begin to accumulate for themselves teachers who will scratch their itchy ears. Tell them what they want to hear refuse to tell them the gospel 
And before we shake our head at people like that, I wonder how it is that you evaluate teaching and teachers. How do you evaluate someone when they bring a message to you or open the Bible before you? Do you think, well, this sounds good to me, it suits me, it's pleasing to me? Or do you think, whatever they're saying, I know that it's coming from God's Word, and sometimes it's not pleasing, it's painful. Well, I don't think any of these people thought that they were actually accumulating for themselves, or even in our day, people to scratch their, their, their tingling ears, but they do it nevertheless. In fact, you notice the problem is not intellectual. They're not accumulating these teachers because they have intellectual problems, but they're accumulating them, according to Paul there in verse 3, to suit their own passions, their own desires. You see, they don't want truth, not because it's confusing to them, but because they don't want to change. They'd rather not change. They'd rather just someone come and tell them God is pleased with the way you live and you have a green light to continue to live that way. I think the question for us in light of what this, this warning, in light of the culture in which we live in, is what are we going to do here at Hamilton Baptist Church? You know, I don't want simply to celebrate the fact that God has been wonderful and faithful to us for 125 years. I, w- I want to take this opportunity perhaps to, to look forward and see what's going to happen in year 126 and 127 and in the years to come. To consider the future in which we are increasingly find ourselves in an environment in which we do not fit in. How will we respond to that? Well, the apostle gives us a charge here in verse 1, doesn't he? I charge you, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Whenever you mount up into a pulpit, whenever you open the Bible in Sunday school, whenever you lead a college Bible study or stand before our children in children's worship, you preach the word, he says. And even when people think that this is out of sync with the culture, even Christian culture, you preach the word. And when people start clamoring for inspiring stories and pop psychology and entertainment on Sunday morning, you preach the word. And when opposition comes and even hostility, you preach the word. In fact, do you think Paul is joking around here? I don't know if you get the weight here. It doesn't seem peripheral to Paul. It seems to be at the center of his last word before he dies as he writes this letter to Timothy. He Notice the, the, what he puts in front of this command to preach the word, the charge that he lays at the feet of this command. He says, I charge you in view of the presence of God in Christ Jesus. Don't hear this as if it were coming from me, he says to Timothy. You ought not to hear this as if it was coming from me this morning. But it is coming from God based upon his authority. Who, by the way, is the judge of the living and the dead, he says, and is coming. He will appear again. And when he comes, he will bring a kingdom. And so he says to Timothy, knowing this, and he says to Hamilton Baptist Church, knowing this, that Christ is coming again. We sing about him, praise him for it this morning. And when he comes, he will come as a king and as a judge. And every man who dares mount a pulpit or opens a Bible in Sunday school or every woman who teaches a woman's class or stands before children will give an accounting to this judge as what they did with God's word. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers. 
For you know those who teach will be judged more strictly, the Bible says. Do you feel the weight of this, Hamilton Baptist Church? Do you understand the weight of what we do every Sunday morning as we gather together under the authority of God's Word? By now you realize I'm preaching to you about preaching. Right? That's a little weird. I understand that. But you do realize that, it, that if someone's to preach, well, it, it takes two to preach, doesn't it? I mean, I've, been, I've been known to preach to myself, but it usually you have more than just the preacher, preferably hundreds of people. If there's a charge here for this preacher to preach the word, then there's equally a charge for those who would not preach, who would never preach, to be preached to. To hear the word, to listen to the word, it is as if, I think he's saying, the word of God is saying, I charge you today, Hamilton Baptist Church, as you move forward into your 126, to make sure the word of God is preached to you. Which raises the question, why, why preaching? I mean, why not, why not teaching? Why not, why not, why not, I mean, why don't we just watch a movie, maybe on Sunday morning, a good Christian movie or something like that? Why not dialogue? We could you know, bring a couple, bunch of people up here. We could have a discussion or something like that. What, why preaching? What, why not teaching? I would suggest to you, by the way, that preaching is not teaching. It is a different form of communication. Preaching includes teaching. In fact, you see there in verse 2, he says, preach the word. And then he ends verse 2 saying, telling us how? With complete patience and, and teaching. So preaching involves teaching. But look over in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. Let me show you something. Paul's here explaining his ministry to Timothy. And in verse 11, he says to Timothy, I was appointed, and he lists three things to which he was appointed. A preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. And so Paul says, I I am supposed to compose the truth as an apostle. I'm to explain the truth as a teacher. And I am to herald or announce the truth as a preacher. That's what preaching means. It simply means heralding. It's it's almost like how they would describe a a town crier walking into the uh, the city square and unrolling the scroll and saying, Hear ye, hear ye. I have news from the king. He has announced pardon to all who will lay down their arms of rebellion. And all the crowd, all the townspeople, they begin to cheer, don't they? They say, Amen, Amen. And he goes on and says, And the king will rule over your good. All things will be for your good. And the townspeople say, Amen! Amen! And he says, And he will do this free of charge, for his son has paid for it all. The preacher comes to herald the word of God. It is more than simply a a reason, explanation of it. It is a rejoicing in it. Because God is not simply informing your mind, but impacting your heart. God simply does not want you to understand Him. Though He does, He wants you to admire Him and rejoice in Him and delight in Him. That's why I think a church will wither and die if these infinitely glorious truths found in God's Word are presented without wonder and awe and conviction. Preaching is more than providing information. It's it's an attempt to create worshipers. An attempt to create people who admire God. I appreciate Richard Baxter, the great Puritan of old, who said to a preacher, Whatever you do, let the people see that you are in good earnest. Men will not cast away their dearest pleasures upon a drowsy request of one that seemeth not to mean as he speaks or care much whether his request be granted. God wants to move your hearts in addition to your minds. 
There's a wonderful example of this found in the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to turn there. This is, if you're a preacher, all preachers love Nehemiah 8. Um, This is one of their favorite passages. We think everyone should probably memorize it. It is so uh, powerful and important. In Nehemiah 8, you see God's people are being gathered together after returning from exile. And they gather together to hear the word of God. Notice verse 1 of Nehemiah 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law that the Lord had commanded Israel. So they want the book of the law. They want the law, right? They're requesting Leviticus. Isn't that great? It's like, it's not, oh no, not Leviticus. They, they want Leviticus. They say, bring us the law of God. Let us hear God's law. And so in verse 2, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Note this, verse 3. And he read it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. So I don't want to hear anything about 50-minute sermons anymore, right? I mean, that's, that's like six hours in Leviticus. And they're just going, I don't know what's going on with the nursery. They must be steaming mad, but he is, he is going strong. And so here, you found my life verse. There it is. From mid, early morning to midday, he's preaching. And, and not only do I love it, they love it. For you read on in verse 3 when it says, In the presence of men and women who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Note verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You see, they're listening to the word of God. And not just listening, they're beginning to respond They begin to shout while he preaches. They begin to bow their heads while he preaches. They begin to raise their hands while he preaches. Because he's not simply trying to inform their minds. He's trying to create worshipers. You you see what we're doing right now is worship. Worship has not ended. This is worship. God is speaking to you through his word that you might respond to him. That your heart might hear him and he might work in you. And, and I know people look at that and say, okay, well that was, I don't know, 3,000 years ago? I mean, get with the times, Stephen. We don't live in that day anymore. We live in a high-tech, fast-paced day. We have television and internet and preaching doesn't work anymore Preaching is foolish, they say. An extended monologue when everybody closes their mouths and opens their ears and one man speaks to them about an ancient book and they say it's just not going to work. It's just not going to reach the modern people. And this is, I'm barraged with this all the time. The missiologists and the blogs and the church growth experts and the consultants, their, their one message is preaching does not work anymore. You need video clips and sound overlays and powerful stories and drama and dialogue and not monologue. People are not going to sit and listen and certainly not going to do it for close to an hour. It's not going to happen. In fact, when I first started preaching, I think my second sermon, an older man in the church put his arm around me and said, Listen, son, um, if you're going to preach to us, you have to keep it no more than 15 minutes long. 
I'm not sure if that was a testimony on his view of preaching or his view of my preaching. Um, but, but nevertheless, that's the word that we get. People do not want this. And, and, and it's, they're not interested in a, in a reasoned and passionate message from an ancient book. And, and to that I would say, you're right. You're right. The crowds don't want preaching. Is that not what Paul is saying? A time is coming when they will not want that. What then should we do? Preach the word. In fact, when, when has it ever not been foolish? Paul walked into Corinth and he said, I'm coming with a foolish message by a foolish man using a foolish method. So that when your marriages are healed and relationships are restored and people are freed from addiction and people learn to sacrifice and love and be united together, you will know it is not a response to my methods, but it is a response to the power of God working in your life. It's always been foolish. That's not new today. And Paul understands that, and God understands that, and so we, Hamilton Baptist Church, I pray, shall always be people centered as we gather together on the preached Word of God. Not because it's our tradition. Certainly not because we think it is the the most effective way in man's strength to reach people in this postmodern world, but because it is the God-ordained means of creating worshipers. Communicating his truth to his people. In fact, you see what we're supposed to preach. Just not anything. He says there in verse 2, preach the word. Well, what's the word? Well, ignore the chapter divisions and look up in verse 15 of chapter 3. He says here to Timothy, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which have been able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's the sacred writings. It's the scriptures. He goes on in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. It's the sacred writings. It's the scriptures. And he tells us why. Verse 15, he says, preach this because they're to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. They teach us how to be reconciled to God and how he continues to work in our lives and how one day he will glorify us through our trust in the Messiah and his death and resurrection for us. This is the purpose of scripture. It is to tell us about Jesus. And so all scripture is either pointing to Jesus, explaining about Jesus, or describing the significance of Jesus' death, um, resurrection, and return, and how it has impacted us. If we therefore approach the Bible as ancient literature, or we uh, approach it as a book of virtues, or look for tips on parenting, or politics, or leadership, you will miss the purpose of the Bible. That's not what it's given for. Certainly we can glean those truths from it, but that is not why it's given. One pastor said it would be like buying a Harry Potter book to use as a travel guide on your upcoming vacation to England. (laughs) You could do that. That may help you a little bit, but that is not why it's written. It's written for a totally different purpose. In fact, he tells us in verse 16 that all scripture is breathed out by God. You understand that it is God's word to us. God is the author. God is the one who's speaking. And therefore, friends, when you gather together to hear God's word, you should approach the word. You should evaluate the sermon, not is it entertaining to me. You should not sit back and relax and think, I hope he says something interesting. But sit up and be like Samuel, who said, speak, Lord. Your servant hears. Come expecting to hear from God. 
It's breathed out by God. In fact, you notice how much of it is? All Scripture. All of it. It all comes from God. Even Leviticus. Even Obadiah. It all comes from God. That's why we, my habit is to preach through books, verse by verse. So that, recognizing it's all God's, it's all worthy of our consideration. It is profitable to understand the King's message that we might delight in the King. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. We're certainly delighted that you are here this morning. You're welcome anytime. We welcome your questions, your objections. I would love to have an opportunity perhaps to, to have a dialogue with you if you would like and take you out for a cup of coffee. It would be my delight to do that. But if you come here this morning because you want to learn more about Christianity or Christians, it, this is a good place to do that. And, and you may think, oh, I'll talk to some Christians. And that would be a, a good place to do that as well. But I would recommend, even above coming and worshiping with us, is that you would get a hold of the Bible and that you would read it. It's God's Word. And you don't even have to believe it before you read it. I mean, if it's God's word, it should validate itself to you. It, 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 should, it should testify to you. And so read it even with your objections. I would suggest perhaps you start in the Gospel of Luke. The Bible has four different accounts of Jesus' life. We call them the Gospels. It begins the New Testament. It's found in the latter portion of the Bible. And Luke will tell you about Jesus. And I would commend you to that. We're to preach God's word. But he not only tells us what to preach, but he tells us how to preach. You see that reading on in verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. This is why I preach so long. I want to preach in the a.m. and the p.m. Right? So we're in season and out of season. Right? By the way, preaching is out of season. We're gonna, that's okay. We're going to keep at it. You see what he says? Reprove. That is correct. Right? We're, we're correcting the mind. We're, we're informing the mind. Rebuke. That's correcting behavior. And exhort or encourage. This is what preaching is is supposed to do. Sometimes you're going to be encouraged by it and comforted by it. And you're going to hear that God has, has because of Christ's death and resurrection, taken away your condemnation. There's no condemnation for you. Or God will reign over you and, and work all things together for your good. And you leave thinking built up and encouraged. But sometimes it, it, the word comes to you and it's a little rough on you. It's like a chisel hammering away at you. It's rebuking you. And it's trying to correct your behavior. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If it's God's word, and, and we're not like God, in case you're not aware of that. And, and if we're not like God, and this is God's word, don't you think it should rebuke us and correct us? Which is very strange, because then what that means is you are coming here on Sunday morning, and you ought to expect to be rebuked sometimes. Not because I'm perfect, but because God is perfect, and He has a, a way for you to live. And, and so you gather together, and, and, and sometimes there's rebuke that's going to come. And I know no one, not a single person here, woke up this morning and thought, I hope I get a good rebuke today. Right? I, that's, that's what I want. Let me have it. I'm going to put some money in the plate and fire away at me. Right? But that's what you need. That's what you need. God needs to take things out of your life in order to put things into it. We need that. God's Word is going to do that. And I understand the pressure that I feel every week when I come to a passage and I think, I don't want to preach that. I don't want to preach that. I just want to get, just skip that or skip by that because that doesn't sound very comfortable. And maybe we'll soften it a little bit. And I understand the pressure that people in churches feel. That sit in pews. Think, well, I don't want to hear this. I'll just go to another church that's just happy, happy all the time. And we won't hear the review. And yet this is what God wants for us. This tells us how to preach. Then he goes on and lastly tells us the result of preaching. You look back up in verse 16. When it says, all scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training righteousness. Very similar to what he said down in verse 2. 
And so the, the Word of God's going to do these things. But notice why, verse 17, that, so that, here's the purpose clause, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Preaching is designed, God's Word is designed to equip you for every good work. How many good works? Every good work. And this is where I think the chiseling comes a little bit. We call this, theologians call this the sufficiency of Scripture. A lot of us evangelicals, we believe in the authority of Scripture. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, that it's without error. But we struggle believing that it will actually equip us for every good work. And the reason I know this is, is the popularity of all the Christian bestsellers. And that when we have an issue in our life, the first place we run to is the Christian bookstore and think what, what author has written on this. And rarely do we actually come to God's word. And now I'm not saying don't read Christian books. I read Christian books all the time. Many of them are helpful. Many of them are not, by the way. Um, but God's word has come here. And it says in verse 17 that it is given to you to equip you for every good work. What that means is that there is one book in all the books that I've ever been written that actually has God's guarantee on it. That it will work such a way in your life that it will equip you in every good work. It will actually produce this in you. And unfortunately, so many times we have sermons that, that are simply the preacher's good ideas with a little scripture sprinkled on top rather than the reason explanation of what scripture is. I simply praise God that I have no good independent ideas. Right? I, I don't have any, so I have nothing to give you. I have nothing other than the Word of God to offer you. And yet this creates a dilemma because you come into this room on Sunday mornings and some of you have parenting issues. And some of you are struggling with depression. Some of you are, are fighting with stewardship issues. And you come and, and I say, open your Bibles to Obadiah. <laughs> and you think, that's good and all, but my home's exploding. What is Obadiah going to do for me? And I understand that, you know, I, I could give you tips on parenting or anger management or dealing with depression. I can. I, I mean, I could channel my inner Dr. Phil and, and I could become an expert on everything. <laughs> but I tell you, friends, there is one book, one book, that has the guarantee of God on it that it will equip you for every good work. It is the Word of God. We need the Word of God. God has given it to us that it may be preached and considered and received and guaranteed that it will transform you. This is how I think it works. When the Bible is preached to you over and over and over again, you see Christ over and over and over again as it points to Jesus. And the more you see Christ, the more the Bible feeds you who Christ is and what He has done and what He will do and how He treats you. Your mind begins to change from the inside. Your desires begin to change. You begin to fall more and more in love with Jesus and who He is and want to follow Him and want what He wants. And when your mind begins to change, your behaviors begin to change. The, how you act and what you say begins to change. And we want to jump right to the behavior uh, issue. We want to go right to the behavior and say, just give me some tips. I just need five tips on how to parent my teenager or how to deal with depression. And we want to just jump right there. And I'm telling you, that will not work. It has no power. 
power in it. The power comes from God working through His Word in order to change you from the inside that you might live differently on the outside. If you get a list and you succeed, all that will do will fill you with pride like a Pharisee. And if you fail, it will fill you with sadness as a failure. We need God's Word. And so if there are men, for instance, let me show you how this works. Maybe there are men here that, that struggle in leading their family in God's Word. And they struggle in, in teaching their children God's Word. And they, to be quite honest, they'd rather watch the basketball game than open God's Word. And we all have, many of us have struggled with that. Now what I could do is I could stand up or someone else could stand up and they stop that. What's wrong with you? You're a man. Be a man. Lead your home. And I could give you, here's four ways in order to lead a family worship. And, and, and I'm not opposed to doing that. But what you need, rather than more four ways, you need your heart changed. You need your life changed. You need to see Jesus over and over and over again in order that he might change you from the inside. And all of a sudden, before you know it, Jesus becomes more important to you than what a 19-year-old can do with a ball. You say, I want my children to know this Jesus whom I love. Well, maybe there's some teenagers here who are struggling with purity issues. Struggling with how to navigate that, those tensions and college students. And what we can do is we can say, hey, listen, you're supposed to be pure. Stop that. Or give you a couple hints on how to maintain purity. Or we can give you God's word. We can show you Christ and how he loves you and what he's done for you. That you might fall more in love with Jesus. And that you don't need some boy's affection to take care of you. That your heart and love is in him. In fact, you, you realize that, that the majority of Christians raised in, in a... Majority of children, excuse me, raised in a Christian home. Within one year of being in college, the majority, over 50%, will, will have abandoned Christ. Over 50% will have abandoned Christ. And many of you experience that. Many of you know exactly. I read in Christian home, went to college, and away I went. And you know what, what the statistics have shown us? The, the difference between the children who don't abandon Christ and those who do abandon Christ. There's three things happen. They have spiritual conversations with mom. They have spiritual conversations with dad. And they serve together. That is, they hear the Bible taught in their home and they see how it's lived out in their family's life. This is what the Word of God is going to do for you. And so I'm not saying that we, we, we shouldn't seek counsel or have advice. I'm not saying don't have lists or tips. In fact, I'm going to give you a list in a minute just to show you I can. Because some of you are concerned. I need some tips. I mean, he's been here a year. I haven't got any tips. So you get seven tips in a minute. So get your pencils ready. It's going to be great. Right? And so you, you, I'm going to give you tips. But I want you to understand that's not the meal. The meal is God's Word. And so, yes, let's go to Obadiah and Jeremiah and Philippi and let it change me as I look at God that I might become a different person in order to act differently. You see, the Word of God is not given to give you guidance alone. It is given to make you godly. It's given to make you godly. And then the guidance comes. So let me just simply say thank you, Hamilton Baptist Church, by the way, for now over a year that you give me an opportunity to preach the word to you. It is the joy of my life. I am living the dream. I get paid to do this. this is, that is crazy. I am robbing from you. I mean, this is, I still want to be paid, but it is wonderful. Right? Okay? It, is, it is wonderful. And not only that, you give me the time to prepare. And I... And I know, uh, uh, prepare and, and research and to pray over these. And I know I could be doing a lot of other things. And a lot of pastors do a lot of other things. And you're very generous to me in saying, no, pastor, we, we want you to prepare and, and get ready to give us God's word. And I thank you for that.
And, and, and yet, it's just not on me. Luke, Jesus told us in Luke chapter 8, take care how you hear. Take care how you hear. For, the, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. So let me give you, as promised, seven tips on how to listen to preaching. Okay? If you do not do these tips, you will not be in sin. All right? This is just some helpful. I think I do these things. These are helpful for me. Number one, pray during the week. I would encourage you to ask God to move in this service. Ask God to open eyes and move mouths and grant repentance. Pray during the week. I would encourage you to prepare in advance. I think you would be wise to get a good night's sleep on Saturday night. If this is important to you, then I think you probably should not come drowsy with little sleep. I think you should make sure that happens. I think you should do your best even to not be rushed on Sunday morning. And you know how you get when you're rushed in. As you know, we have seven children. We, we do our best not to be rushed. Right? And, and we get our kids ready in order to be here by 8.50. Right? And what I mean by me, I mean Allegro, of course. Right? <laughs> it, is a, it is a minor miracle. They are fed. They're all clothed. It is wonderful. Right? And so I would encourage you, prepare. Read the passage during the week. Know what I'm going to preach. I'm just preaching the next text usually. And you know I'm only going to preach like three verses, so it shouldn't take you long to read them. Right? So read it. Come and open your Bibles. I know the scripture is usually on the screen. But I think when you have your Bible open in your lap, you are continually reminded throughout this time that what you're hearing is not what a man is speaking to you, but this is the word of God given to you. I think the Bible in your lap reinforces that God is speaking to you. I would say number four, listen for God. Expect God to speak to you. As I said, ask him to speak to you. Sit up and listen. Number, well, I, I, maybe I'm not good at this. I'm totally lost now. Anyways, whatever number's next, worship God. You see how Nehemiah, when he preached the word, how they're impacting, they're letting the word impact them. Let it impact you. Next, consider it through the week. Right? So once the word is preached, just don't stop. Think about it during the week. Maybe write some notes in the margin of your Bible, or some of you take notes, and that's great. Review that. Consider that. Talk about that over lunch with those you gather together from church or your spouse or your children or in your small groups or your discipleship partner. Tell a coworker what you learned on Sunday morning. Right? People are going to ask you when you go to work tomorrow, so what did you do this weekend? Well, tell them. You know, what I did is my preacher talked to us about the importance of the Word of God. Let that be opportunities to open conversations with your coworkers. And lastly, I would encourage you to respond. Respond to God's word. It is given to you that you might respond, that you might be changed. Friends, the time is coming and is now here, I think, when people will abandon the word of God. They'll accumulate teachers for them who will not preach. There is a whole church movement in which there is no preaching in their church. It's just dialogue. They want dialogue and not monologue. Others have perverted what the message is. I would encourage us to, to stick to it. In fact, you notice verse 5 as we close our time in God's word. He says, as for you, always be sober-minded. He's telling Timothy not to lose his head. Stick to it, he says. Don't run away with the fads. This is what Paul has done. He has done this. 
As I mentioned, this letter is written, this la- Paul's last le- letter, he's about to die. For verse 6 tells us, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. One day Christ will come again, and, and he will place a crown upon your head, Christian. Stand firm. When our culture goes in our face the opposite way, stand firm, he says. Look not to the fads of the day, but look to this ultimate day that Christ is returning. In fact, let's celebrate that day now as we come to the Lord's Supper. In fact, that's what we're doing when we take the Lord's Supper. We're not only thinking about what he did, we're anticipating what he will do. The Bible says when you eat of this bread and drink of, when you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. You know what? Until he comes. He's coming. He's coming. Maybe today. We can only hope and pray. But let's remember that day. Let's remember He's coming as we commune together. This meal in which we're about to participate is a, it's a meal for Christians. I mentioned if you're not a Christian, we're happy that you're here. We're delighted that you are. But we would ask you not to participate in this meal as the elements are passed by. And we do that not simply to be rude to you, but because it's what the Bible tells us ought to take place. And we want to be obedient to God. And for those of us who are believers, the Bible also instructs us that we should consider the manner of our life before we eat and drink. That if there is any unrepentant sin in our heart, that we should lay that at the foot of the cross, knowing we're covered in grace. It is a celebration of grace for sinners, and yet we are to do it soberly in awe of what Christ has done. So as is our custom, I'll give you a moment to silently pray to the Lord in order that he might search your heart, that you might prepare yourself for the Lord's Supper. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we delight in the grace in which we received that we are about to celebrate. We who claim Christ as our Savior and Lord confess to you that we have fallen short, we have rebuilt. And yet in your infinite kindness and mercy and grace, you have sent your Son to pay for all of our sin. That he would die for us, bearing your holy wrath, that we might be saved. We want to celebrate that and remember that. We want this food not simply to nourish our bodies, but to nourish our souls. We consider the unimaginable love of the holy God for sinful people. We rejoice and thank you. Please help us. Please help these truths which we remember to change us. And that we might increasingly despair of sin and rejoice in following Christ no matter the cost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.